again to another episode of Act and Perspective Podcast using two norm, your host, Hugh Semenik. Today, our guests are Nathan Gates and Dr. Brian Pilecki, experts on the therapeutic value of psychedelics. Nathan Gates is a psychotherapist and regenerative counterfarmer in West Central Illinois. His career and training have been inspired by insights from psychedelic medicines for more than 20 years. He is also a founder of the Psychedelic Specialist Group with the Association for Potential Behavioral Science and has spoken at regional and international conferences on the usefulness of utilizing contextual behavioral perspectives to make sense of and integrate insights from psychedelic experiences. Dr. Brian Blackie is a clinical psychologist at Portland Psychotherapy that specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders, trauma, and PTSD, and matters related to the use of psychedelics. He's an active researcher and has published on topics such as anxiety disorders, mindfulness, and psychedelics. His paper on ethical and legal issues in psychedelic harm reduction and integration therapy outlines the risk for clinicians conducting psychedelic integration for clients who are using psychedelics on their own. At Portland Psychotherapy, Brian is also a study therapist on a clinical trial investigating the use of MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of social anxiety disorder. He's also co-chairperson for the Special Interest Group on Psychedelics and on the ACBS website. He co-hosts a podcast called Altered States of Context about the intersection of psychedelics and psychotherapy, and has appeared on several national podcasts as well, such as Very Well Mind and Beyond Addiction. We open with Nathan Gates giving us a brief history of psychedelics in the West. Enjoy. We're talking about various timescales, of course, because you can really look throughout human history and find evidence of the use of um, what we today call psychedelic um, substances, um, you know, cave paintings with mushrooms, um, you know, South, Af- South American temples that have, you know, residue from San Pedro cactus, you know, and all kinds of iconography on the walls that suggest uh, this is a temple in Chavin, um, you know, that suggest uh, ritual use. Um, so way, way, way back, our relationship with um, plant medicines um, now in the West, <clears throat> you know, it's a much shorter history because this sort of, uh, at least to, um, I think, uh, mainstream usage kind of was lost to the West for quite some time. And um, it really was in the 20th century um, with um, sort of mescaline um, coming from the interface with uh, Southwestern um, Native people, um, uh, the peyote. Um, which contains mescaline, which is a really powerful um, psychedelic. Um, And so there was, you know, mescaline kind of entered into the culture, the American culture at that point. Um, And then um, later, I think it was, I'm forgetting, it was in the 40s or 50s, I can't remember exactly. uh, uh, A gentleman went down to uh, Mexico and um, took mushrooms with a curandero, named Marina, Maria Sabina and brought that back and made a Time Life article um, and got a lot of attention for um, uh, psilocybin, a lot of curiosity. And so the, you know, the, the, it began to sort of percolate um, you know, throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s in um, sort of uh, intellectual circles, kind of like uh, you know, it was a cultural curiosity, I would say. You know, artists and intellectuals were, were really interested in it. And um, that sort of changed then when Albert Hoffman um, discovered, created, discovered LSD uh, um, quite by accident. 
synthesized it in his Swiss laboratory, um, put it away for a while, got it out for some, for some reason, uh, you know, intuition, cause he thought it might work for something else. Got some on his fingers and tripped, um, which was quite a surprise if you weren't expecting it. <laughs> and then, um, went back to it later and was like, what is this? And took some, and then really like tripped balls <laughs> uh, in modern parlance. And, um, you know, had a famous bike ride back uh, to his house. And it was, it was a pretty bad, bad trip, I think, because, you know, as you might expect, if you're really, really, really tripping, you have no idea what's going on. Um, and you took a, a, a just a chemical, uh, you might be kind of worried. Um, but that, you know, opened up um, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals was the name of the pharmaceutical company. And they were interested in, well, what kind of applications does this have? And that really opens it up to the uh, modern medical history of it, the, you know, within the medical and psychiatry, um, seeing like Sandoz basically sent it out to anybody who wanted to experiment with it. Like, Hey, here's this chemical that does some wild stuff and we think it might be useful, but you know, if, if you want to toy around with it and see what it does, go for it. And so, um, you know, it was used in a lot of ways. It was believed, uh, one model that was used for a while was that it was a called a psychotomimetic um, which I mean, they, they thought it mimicked, um, basically psychosis. So they thought this could be really useful. We can have something that can temporarily uh, engender a psychotic state and we can learn a lot about psychosis and maybe about the treatment of psychosis. Um, and so that was a model that was used for a while. Didn't really appear to be that useful. Um, it was used, um, psycholytically for a while, um, which was kind of a, a real Freudian approach to it. It's like, well, if you put a kind of a lower dose of LSD, the, the, the participant is still pretty with it and can talk. Maybe they can help uh, access the unconscious. Um, and so it was very therapeutic Freudian and it's sort of, it's like um, <clears throat> conceptualization. And then sort of by accident, um, people using it, uh, therapists, scientists discovered that a whole, a big, huge dose created, created a big, huge experience, but that that experience was extremely interesting. And, uh, for some people often transformative and, um, that's kind of called the psychedelic approach to, um, to therapy. Like it's a psychedelic dose, like a large dose given to engender an experience that's fairly major. Um, and, and then, of course, there have been many, many, many other ways it's 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 been used. You know, the CIA got involved because they thought it might be an interesting mind control substance and did a whole bunch of nefarious things, um, you know, back in the 60s. But, you know, then famously, of course, it sort of escaped um, the gatekeepers. It escaped the laboratory and, and emerged into culture. You know, LSD in particular, you know, psilocybin, too, and, and mescaline. But LSD was the big one because it <clears throat> was made you know, uh, you know, you could be made a huge batch, you know, millions of doses could be made and distributed. Right. It's very, very, very potent. So it doesn't take up much space. It was really easy to distribute everywhere. Um, and so it's like, literally, I think kind of exploded across the culture. Um, and right. it made it from this sort of like, um, social unrest that, you know, at least maybe it was unprecedented, but maybe at least seemed familiar to this like super weird thing. Now we've got these people who aren't just like protesting, but they're like, playing music and taking off their clothes and standing in the street and moving out into the country and, you know, talking about, you know, communes and not needing government, like, all, like, it's just like, well, now it's just weird. Like what, what is happening? And so I think that yeah. that felt 
like control slipping away uh, from, you know, and, and so it's, it's sort of a panicked backlash um, led in part to the Controlled Substances Act, which made it illegal, um, ended research, which, by the way, I don't think I mentioned that, you know, during that time, 50s and 60s, you know, as the scientists were studying this, there was a lot of work being done um, on various forms of, um, you know, mental illness, addiction, uh, things like this. Um, it's, it's research that, you know, if you look at it, doesn't quite um, line up to the standards of today because none of the research back there, back then did. But it's also, you can't look at the body of what was done and just dismiss it out of hand either. Yeah. Um, so it, it, there's definitely a sig- like strong signal that like there's, there's some interesting stuff going on that seems useful, but we really, we needed to know more. And then we were, um, the opportunity to learn more was taken away for, for decades. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, but psychedelics didn't go away. Um, they've been used since then at um, <laughs> raves and Grateful Dead shows and in the woods and around fires and with friends and in all kinds of settings. You know, people have been using them um, nonstop uh, since then. So they, they just obviously went underground um, and then sort of reemerged, um, you know, in the, in the last just really really in the last decade, the last two decades, but the last decade in a very accelerated way um, at places like, um, you know, Imperial College in London, Johns Hopkins University here, you know, studying it for, um, you know, anxiety and end of life uh, depression um, and, you know, other things leading to where we're at today, which is sort of a full blown, um, often called the psychedelic renaissance, but um, kind of an explosion in interest and uh, academic interest, clinical interest, and that's the that's the shortest version I could do. Yeah. It wasn't that yeah. short, but Beautiful. that was about yeah. as short as I could make it. The person that really came up in the book and Paul's book a lot, uh, you know, Harvard psilocybin project was uh, was Leary Timothy Leary, and how people mm-hmm. a lot of people just demonized him back in the sixties for um, for. Uh, corrupting this uh the all the hard work that they that they did um but he wasn't the only one right and there was uh timothy leary but also there was richard alpert who now later became ramdas mm-hmm. um <clears throat> can you talk or uh, brian can you also talk about um how those players those key players like richard alpert timothy leary what they contributed to um the research going on and the culture that we have now? Yeah, sure. There was also Ralph Metzner, who was at Harvard. Uh, I was lucky enough to study a bit with Ralph at CIAS in the early 2000s. Um, He's since passed away. So he was kind of a a personal mentor of mine. Um, I'm not familiar with their individual, you know, I can't really say with specificity what their individual contributions were, but in general, you know, they were interested in figuring out what this stuff was, this LSD that landed in their in their hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Timothy and and uh, and Ralph was involved and others were involved in several key studies, the Good Friday experiment, the Concord prison experiment. Um, so there was an initial attempt to try to figure out what are these altered states of consciousness and how can they potentially be used to treat mental health problems? So right away, it was uh, sort of thought that 
there's something healing, there's something uh, associated with change and transformation that can come from these experiences. Um, how might they be applied to treating mental health conditions? And some of the earlier research uh, really focused mostly on substance abuse and LSD, um, but LSD was also applied to a range of other mental health problems, uh, even schizophrenia itself, which today sounds um, a little crazy to think about uh, using something that we, we, we have a better sense now that likely um, has a risk of increasing psychosis if you're vulnerable, but uh, they were, they were, you know, kind of exploring what, what is the potential for this? Yeah. Yeah. Was there, um, was there a risk? Um, um, it, the research wasn't so tightly controlled. Is that the same feeling today that, Hey, we, we've got to watch our P's and Q's because we don't. And, um, this, um, this kind of like the, the research loosens that we're going to lose funding and that we're going to lose respect. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the research back then was not very tightly controlled. I mean, first of all, we just didn't have the methodologies in science that we have today. Um, but I mean, there is even accusations of uh, kind of mis, you know, fudging the data, misleading. You know, Timothy Leary was accused of, of uh, kind of uh, distorting the data in one of his studies. So I do think that people who have gone into this area in the last couple of decades, really the last decade, um, have uh, had an eye towards the need to be extra rigorous, um, extra cautious because of the controversial nature of this work. And I think some of the earliest studies in this more recent movement of research are very well constructed very um, you know, rigorous trials that have allowed um, for this, this data that it's, it's hard to criticize, right? I mean, if the data, if the, if the research was not well conducted, you know, critics could easily dismiss it and say, well, you know, wasn't a great study, but um, uh, so many of these studies were really well done and the data you know, it's strong. We could talk about that if that's interesting, but the data suggests promise here as a, as a new clinical treatment. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's a, it serves as a good segue into now let's move on to the psychedelic experience itself. We're talking about two different things. Uh, are we not of, of, um, microdosing, um, and also the full experience, um, where people, you know, fully trip. Can you talk about both, uh, starting with this is uh, the, what people typically experience with a full dose of psychedelics and are there different types of psychedelics with, di with different experiences? Other. Um, yes, there, there are, although, um, so you have uh, roughly, I think you can say that there's like the classical psychedelics, um, psilocybin and LSD. Um, I think even though chemically mescaline is a little different experientially, it's generally put into that, um, the classical psychedelics. Um, and they differ a little bit in, in quality, uh, like the, the, the subjective quality of them, but more or less they are 
similar experiences. They differ by time. You know, like LSD is a eight to 12 hour trip. Psilocybin's, you know, four to eight. Um, uh, mescaline, I think is, is uh, a little somewhere between. Um, and, you know, ayahuasca would be kind of in the, in the classical psychedelic and that it behaves kind of similarly. And then there's MDMA, I think is the most prominent drug that would be uh, intactogen or empathogen, or it's put in the same rubric as psychedelic, although it's not a true psychedelic. It, it, it is often, you know, thrown in that group, but it's a little distinct. Um, a classic MDMA. psychedelic. Yeah, that, that's actually yes. ecstasy, right? But okay. Yes, ecstasy. It, it's better known as ecstasy, MDMA, same um, same chemical. Um, so a classical psychedelic, let's say psilocybin or LSD, um, they you, know, you they last different lengths of time. So let's let's just go for the sake of uh, being consistent. One thing, psilocybin, you know, someone takes it, and you know it won't do anything for it's 30 minutes at least before generally there's much um, uh, you, before the person would feel much. And then, you know, generally 45 <laughs> minutes to an hour later, the effects will come on, you know, pretty strongly. Um, it will feel disorienting. Um, and um, it's very hard to describe, um, you know, your perception will begin to alter, you know, colors uh, will begin to, become brighter or less bright uh closing your eyes you might have um not true hallucinations like you wouldn't have an experience that something not there is there um but you would see all you know visions um uh, potentially um you begin to lose uh, i think one of the more interesting um, aspects it's one of the reasons it's hard to describe is you know you your sense of language really fades and on a heavy trip, it almost goes away. Words almost completely lose their meaning at all, um, which for uh, an, an act audience, I think is particularly interesting that you're disabling language function. Um, and uh, that very, very, very much changes the way you um, experience uh, the world around you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I had, my last podcast was Chris, Dr. Chris Niebauer. I don't know if you ever got a chance to read, uh, read his book, uh, uh, No Self, No Problem. But he, he talks about, he's, he's um, um, a neuropsychologist, but he talks about left and right brain and how the left brain actually creates the language and the structure of our everyday um, ex, uh, consciousness. But the right brain, is, and it's mostly a, more of a metaphor, but um, how he talks so much about left left and right brain experiences but this this seems to me a shift then if you're talking about an ineffable experience uh that can't be wrapped up in language and i've heard that oftentimes a lot but you're shifting from this kind of language structured left brain to now the right brain where now it's uh you experience non-duality dissolution of the self um can you get a little, a little bit more about that rabbit hole of what what one typically experiences in that direction yeah i would i'd say like would, to hear oh go ahead i was gonna say i'd like to hear what you say I, uh, yeah go ahead go ahead I, all i want to do is use a metaphor and then i kind of want to like because it's it's the metaphor i think that I, I prefer to use for this which is that um if you think of your normal everyday um, experience as operating, you know, you're operating from a map 
you know, like you're kind of like navigating the world, um, your, your mental, um, your conceptual mental um, network, right, maps on to reality. And you kind of operate from that map, you know, you're operating from your concepts, your thoughts, you know, you're, you're, you're in that system. And, and generally that maps pretty well closely onto the world around you. Mm -hmm. um, but not always, right? Like there's distortions in your map. Um, you know, there's areas in which, you know, your map is incomplete. There's areas in which your map kind of cause behavior that's not helpful. So your map and the territory aren't precisely the same, mm -hmm. but you operate from your map. And when you take psychedelics, that map kind of poof goes away and you're just standing in the territory. You're looking around and you're seeing everything unmediated by the concepts that you have learned about it. So when you see the couch, you're not seeing your concepts of couch. You're seeing directly this lumpy thing right there. And you're having like a direct experience of that that's not mediated by your conceptual uh, learning history. You know, that, that's how I like to, to think of it. And then yeah, I just wanted to throw that out. I think that's helpful. But yeah, go ahead, Brian. I, I find another metaphor useful here besides that one, which is uh, thinking about a fish swimming in water, doesn't really understand the, the nature of water while they're in it, doesn't even, it takes it for granted. And one day the fish goes to the surface and flops out and experiences a whole different state of being in the air. And then is able to be like, holy crap, like, what was that? That was so different than what I'm normally used to. And then that allows the fish, let's pretend, to be able to have a different perspective on what that water is. And, you know, in this metaphor, language is, is, the, is the, 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 you know, language, symbols, categories is the, is the water that, that we're all swimming in all the time. We, and we, we don't realize how it limits our experience sensory or embodied experience of being in the world and so when you turn off that language valve and you have this sort of more direct uh or even um kind of uh playful sensory experience of reality it's it allows you then to understand what day-to-day -day consciousness is really about right right yeah there's um i think bill it was bill richards who, who said the experience is kind of like taking caveman uh, and then transporting him in time to the center of Manhattan, present day Manhattan, and then um, transporting him back instantly and having him explain, try to try to understand what was, um, what just happened. And um, it's, uh, and they also use the code, like we have five crayons, but we have 50,000 shades of, um, to, uh, that we have directly experienced. Do you think, you know, the most important, the, 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 there's, there's two really big things that captured my attention in the psychedelic experience uh, that I haven't had uh, personally, but I've read a lot about is one, the dissolution of the ego. And do you feel, and also this kind of ground base of knowing just, just, uh, you know, you can't explain it, but just your, a, a, level of certainty that you've never had before this your experience uh, under psychedelics is more real than this than this everyday conscious experience where one who hasn't had that experience would say oh we're just that's just a drug hallucination can you talk a little bit more about that yeah it's it's super interesting right you know i one way i think about it is 
you know, when you're intoxicated on alcohol, I know when I've been drunk, I've had things that sounded like really good ideas. Uh, and then the next morning I wake up and I'm like, what an idiot. Uh, it doesn't hold up the next day. Very rarely with alcohol. Same with I same feel like, yeah, I've, I've experienced the same with weed where it's like, oh, I feel so enlightened on weed. And then I've realized this. No, I'm not. I'm really not. But yeah. So the strange thing about psychedelics is people who have these experiences don't don't tend to do that. Or if they do that, it's more of an attempt to sort of minimize it because it's hard to integrate. Uh, there is this kind of strange phenomena where people will, when they have these more, we could call them mystical type experiences, it feels as if that is somehow more real than this reality, or there's something true, there's some truth there. You know, people will say things like the universe was talking to me, or I was getting a download of information about the nature of reality. And of course, all this sounds really crazy to somebody who doesn't, you know, have experience in this territory. And it is a strange phenomenon, but that is a consistent kind of feature of these more uh, profound psychedelic experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there are people in history, um, like Jane Shadman, and um, there's um, a Steve Jobs actually. Um, is it is it true that they can actually prove that through their psychedelic experience, their profound insights that that's actually to um, groundbreaking technologies that we have today. Is that true, or is it that um, we're going to have those insights with or without psychedelics? I mean, I don't know that that's uh, provable, but um, certainly, I mean, I'm inclined to. Um, you hear that enough, right? You hear that, like, I think that that is a common enough refrain um, of people, may, you know, claiming they have insights that have been transformational in some way you know be it like a the um development of the uh like conceptualization of the double helix um to um yeah to steve jobs and you know but even just more commonplace you know you just talk to, to psychedelic users who will have had this particular insight and it allowed them to make changes in their life for that so i i just think it's a common enough refrain that you'll hear from people who use psychedelics, why I, I think it would be, you know, to just disbelieve that many people because of a, a sort of an abstraction that says, well, that can't possibly be the case from just a drug. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think that, that 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 kind of abstraction, you know, takes like anecdotes, you know, they're anecdotes, but they're consistent and there's a lot of them over time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think this would be another area that would be, you know, interesting to, you know, study more. And there's been some work done with creativity. Um, that that's a that that that's a common uh, people um, claim to have creative insights. And I think another well, uh, and uh, more evidence I would put on that is you know you look at um, music and art. You know, um, the impact of uh, psychedelics on music and art is pretty tremendous. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I just so, I just yeah, watched the. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just. I just uh, recalled in mind. I just watched a, a documentary on on Netflix with uh, about Bob Weir, um, and his. He was one of the um, co-founders of the Grateful Dead, and how oh, he, yes. yeah, all their their uh, music. Uh, he 
um, describe telepathy and, and all these kind of paranormal experiences that they had that really, really influenced their music. Yeah, they were there at the, at the you know, they were there in the mid 60s in, in San Francisco, um, you know, co-creating, co-creating that. Um, oh, I, I talked about the Griffith Lid for a long time, but I don't know that anybody wants to go there right now. <laughs> uh, but what has been proven, though, is that the, the this efficacy um, or this, uh, this effectiveness um, with um, one or two um, therapeutic treatments of, of psychedelics having profound and lasting changes in personality and treatment of disorders, especially anxiety disorders, depression, things of that nature. Can you can you um, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the, the so we you know in the last ten years or so, there's been more trials uh, after this hiatus where th this wasn't really studied. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that these are very small, tightly controlled trials, you know, with sample sizes of maybe, you know, 20, 20 or so participants. Um, the, the most data that we've got so far is the use of MDMA for PTSD. Um, you know, there's been several hundred participants who've received that treatment and they're in current phase three trials. Uh, and the data is very good that uh, it's MDMA assisted therapy um, it is helpful in, in reducing symptoms of PTSD. And the other area is psilocybin for uh, depression or end of life distress. Mm. Um, so those are the two big areas right now. Um, MDMA will likely be uh, federally approved in 2023. Psilocybin will likely be federally approved in 2025-ish. Um, but we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of what these uh, different medicines might be good for what conditions, for what types of clients, um, and, and so I think, you know, the early data, there was a, a, a meta-analysis that uh, my colleague Jason Luoma published, which showed effect sizes for psychedelic-assisted therapy to be around two to three times as large as traditional therapy or traditional medications. And again, these are tightly controlled early studies, so it's hard to, um, you know, interpret too much, but there's really not been any innovation in mental health treatment that has created such an improvement over existing therapies, right? Like I'm an ACT person. I think, you know, in the beginning, we all hoped that the data would show ACT is better than CBT and shows this big statistically significant increase. But it turns out like in terms of therapies, they're, 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 there's not one therapy that really out, you know, outperforms another. But here's something that potentially could really outperform current treatments. And I think that's exciting and obviously warrants a lot more research. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Let's move on to the, to, um, um, the process, the therapeutic process. Um, and uh, Brian, I, I have you've conducted microdosing in your clinic, and maybe um, you haven't. Correct? You're um, you're a psychotherapist, but have you dealt with um, psychedelics? No, 
I, I have not, and you know, I don't think anyone, like very few people have, like with the microdosing, we can we uh-huh. can mention that real quick. The microdosing yeah. is taking a very small, uh, I mean, by definition, I think it's a sub-perceptual dose. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, like, let's say your standard, um, if we're talking street drugs, your standard tab of LSD would be about 100 micrograms, give or take, right? Subperceptual, you know, to stay below a threshold that you'll perceive is, you know, somewhere in the range of 15 micrograms. Um, so, you know, a little fraction of, of that. Um, and the idea is that you take that, but you don't notice anything mm-hmm. perceptually, like, but that it operates sort of on your brain in such a way to kind of, well, I don't know. <laughs> it yeah. does something. So we have two randomized control trials now that that are uh, like two randomized control trials of microdosing that don't show any effect at all. And the ones that do are not controlled. And this is the sort of, uh, you know, it's the exact kind of thing where the placebo effect would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. So when it's been studied, I, I, I'm a, I'll just own that I'm a pretty big microdosing skeptic myself. I, I just don't. Um, I believe that the what psychedelics do fundamentally is they evoke an experience and that that experience helps us learn and make, you know, it, it like we learn from that experience. So it shifts our perspective and that enables new learning. And to me, the subperceptual aspect kind of doesn't make any sense. I'm like, well, if you don't perceive anything differently, then how does it help? Like, it just doesn't make any sense uh, conceptually to me. Um, so it's one of those where the research sort of like plays to my personal biases, but I mean, still, I guess it's, it's, it's possible, but it definitely, I'm like, I see those two studies. I'm like, yeah, see, that's what I thought. So. <laughs> yeah. So with microdosing, I, first of all, I, I haven't actually given psychedelics to any clients yet. Okay. What I do is provide therapy support for their own personal use. So they're using psychedelics on their own. Um, I'm involved in a clinical trial of MDMA for social anxiety, which hasn't started yet um, as the time of this podcast recording. So um, typically, you know, clients are using microdosing on their own and there's not really much to do because there's no altered state of consciousness. They're taking the, the, the microdose, going about their workday, going about their lives and maybe you know reflecting on what what they're experiencing, journaling about it, et cetera. Um, I know there's a lot of integration uh, therapists or coaches out there that work with microdosing. Um, but for me, I, I'm also that's not an, uh, a stronger area of interest. I'm more interested in uh, you know more macrodosing, bigger experiences where there's some, as Nate said, some sort of um, experience, experiential learning, right? If as act therapists, that's what we're very interested in. Uh, some some new way of experiencing themselves or their 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 minds, their their reality, uh, and then using that to inform change. Hashtag okay. Team Macro. Okay, all right. That's, that's good to know because I I remember uh, like watching a um, a. Um, a YouTube video on James Fadiman, one of his lectures. Anyway, when he was saying like, you know, some people have been microdosing for 45 uh, plus years. And, you know, he has this book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Um, and I haven't read it yet, but he, I know he talks a little bit about um, 
the structure of microdosing and how it makes people feel. It doesn't give them the psychedelic experience exactly, but it kind of breaks down the walls to allow them to um, be be more guided, I guess, and, and intuitive. It gives them a, a an improved affect. Is, is that accurate? I think people- That talk. is the, that's the claim. Yeah. Okay. All right. People report all kinds of benefits. Okay. Microdosing. Okay. And then just a more profound experience that you're talking about um, with how many, say, where were you talking about psilocybin? How many micrograms would be uh, typical for, um, for a profound experience? Yeah, so in the trials, they use synthetic psilocybin. So it's hard to make, you know, accurate um, comparisons, but the dosage used in the trials is about equivalent to five grams of dried mushrooms, which is a pretty sizable dose for most people. Um, yeah. You know, most people generally think somewhere around one or two grams is on the lower side, you know, two to four, medium size, four to five is a, a larger dose. Of course, people who are experienced psychonauts, you can take much more than that. It's, it's safe. It's not like you're going to overdose on it, yeah. but I always recommend starting with lower doses, especially if you're new, you can always um, add more later. Uh, but in the trials, in the context of that safe and supportive setting, um, they go for a, a, a pretty sizable dose to have a more intense transformative experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter. She has friends that, um, so of course, weed is prevalent. And she's, she, I know she's talked about, um, you know, friends has shrooms. And we have, it's like, oh, we want to all try shrooms. And we, you know, we had planned to go to a, to a friend's house and, and, uh, and have one of the larger sisters uh, or older sisters watch them and while they take shrooms. And I'm thinking, oh no, uh, there's a huge red flag for me here. Is there a danger and and just an unstructured use, or is it a fairly safe drug? Um, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> the short answer is, I mean, yes. It's it's uh, there is a risk. Um, I think that um, it's important to know that right now, um, like all across the world, right? Like there are young people who are taking mushrooms, who are taking LSD, who are taking lots and lots and lots of drugs. And it's happening right now um, in the context of, of prohibition. And it's done in environments that are not optimal uh, with low information, not knowing. Um, you know, not knowing much about the drug, not knowing the quality of the drug, not even knowing if the drug is what they think it is. Yeah. Um, doing so without, you know, uh, and, you know, and, and with those drugs in particular, it's also important to remember that almost, that almost all the time it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but not always, there are risks, right? And so I'm not, you know, endorsing that, but I'm also not condemning it. I'm not here to do either of those things. But I do think that what we need to think about when we think about young people and drug use is we need to think about maximizing the quality of information that young people have. We need to maximize 
the conversations that we have with our children about them. And we need to, to, to have good information. Um, and the, you know, our kids need to have good information. Um, and they need to sort of have a reasonable and safe expectation, you know, and, and um, right now, if anybody listening, I mean, if your kid wants to go do drugs and they're 16 or 17, if they want to go do psychedelic drugs, like they're going to be able to, right? Like they're going to have access. They're, they're going to, to be able to find them. Um, and that's the case right now, you know, whether we like it or not as parents, you know, so we need to arm them with information and, um, and, you know, with our relationship and with, um, our guidance, you know, allow them to come to their, you know, come to a relationship with that or not, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's a, that's a, a tricky question to answer, but I do, you know, because I mean, there's such a taboo around, you know, young people and drug use. I mean, I do think in an appropriate context, right? Like there's a, a powerful element that could be a sort of a rite of passage, um, you know, that can be, um, you know, moving from, from childhood to adulthood in, in, a, in a safe environment that it can be an experience that can be beneficial. I'd be a complete hypocrite if I would say that it couldn't be because, you know, I was at, um, you know, uh, late adolescence for me, but at the age when I had really transformative, profoundly positive experiences, right? And they were in naturalistic, unsupervised environments. So, um, but I think that, um there's an element of luck there that I think most parents aren't really very comfortable with that we, you know, can minimize the luck necessary by empowering people with, with good information um, and in the ending prohibition, which really encourages a lot of very powerful incentives to have bad drugs out there and have bad counterproductive information out there and to encourage a lot of uh, like sneakiness and illicitness. And so um, I think that, you know, if we liberalize drug policy, I mean, I think it's going to actually give parents better tools with which to engage their kids around these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the search in the book a lot, set and setting, set and setting. So I'm very interested in taking um, a a full trip myself, um, but I want you know, I, I want to do it the right way, uh, where you know there's a it's it's guided and the correct set and setting that um, um, I can gain full benefits. Can you talk a bit about uh, more about the proper set and setting? Yeah, this is definitely something that uh, you know comes up when people are trying to plan, like where, how do I use these? Um, I think it's good to be mindful of a lot of the details. So I think the important thing for me, when I work with clients around this and they ask that question to you is, is it a place that you feel safe and comfortable? Um, if it's your, you know, an early experience, you don't have a lot of experience or no experience, uh, there should be somebody there with you, somebody that you trust just to kind of look after you, look after your needs um, you know, answer the door if someone comes unexpectedly. Um, you know, we could talk about all kinds of different parameters, like should I do this at home or not at home, or should I do this outdoors, or should I do it at night or during the day? Um, I think ultimately the most important thing again is that you think it through, feel you know, figure out what works for you, and 
make sure that you, you feel safe and comfortable. Ideally, the day before, the night before, you want to um, reduce your responsibilities so you can begin to allow your mind to settle. Um, you don't go into it stressed out, you know, sh closing off your Outlook um, email and then running to take the psilocybin because you're, you know, you're, you're stressed. Um, you want to kind of go into it almost like with a, a, a bit of a, a meditative attitude, like kind of slowing down, maybe less time on the phone, et cetera. And then you really want to carve out that day if you can uh, to not have responsibilities. And then even the day after, uh, it's really hard as a parent. It's really hard having a job to, to really be able to do that. Um, so, you know, you have to fit it into your practical life. But the more that you can create a bit of a container to help prepare you to go into it settled and then afterwards to allow some time to work with whatever came up because you might have insights, you might have experiences that uh, you'll want to kind of really sit with. And, you know, as contextual behavioral therapists, we know the power of the environment. So the environment is going to pull us right back into our older ways of thinking and behaving. So, you know, I think it's good to think about if you can have a psychedelic experience outside of your home. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of a trip or journey is to go away somewhere and having a new environment um, helps, I think, facilitate that process of going someplace new. Uh, if we're at home, we're more likely to be reminded of our day-to-day -day lives, which again, practically speaking, may be the best situation for a person. Um, but, you know, I'd recommend if possible to try to be in a, a newer environment. Yeah. You both have a podcast. So, um, do a podcast called Altered States of Con Consciousness, correct? <clears throat> Alter Altered States of Context. Thank you. Altered States of Context. Um, <clears throat> uh, have you all talked about uh, your own personal experiences? Um, using psychedelics and how did that, how, how has that transformed you personally? We have, um, you know, and I think in the, I think in our first episode for our first season, we talked a little bit about kind of like how we came to be on this, um, you know, on this path. Um, but yeah, it's an ongoing you know, in my case, I'll, you know, obviously, just speak for myself. In my case, it's a sort of an ongoing relationship over time, um, and so it isn't. Um, you know, there's a popular idea. Alan Watts said, uh, "When you get the message, turn off the phone or hang up the phone." You know, the sort of idea that, like, hey, psychedelics have this sort of like insight to offer, and once you get that insight, you're done, um, or you're best to be done, and then pick up a practice such as meditation or something like that. And that that that's uh, an attitude that people take. Other people. Um, you know, think of it more as a, as a relationship that evolves over time, um, that, you know, there are at many different stages of life, there are places that we get sort of stuck or hung up or could use a different perspective or a nudge, um, and that, it, that use has utility throughout the lifespan. Um, but that's a view that I would more endorse, um, personally. Um, I, I don't, um, you know, I don't see why you would just take it once or twice and then be done. I mean, if unless that's what you like and that's what works for you, um, I don't think that there's inherently a reason to to um, you know it, it's 
if done properly, I mean, it's a remarkably safe experience. <laughs> um, like it's, it's not like, oh, you're taking this really huge risk. So you should probably only do it once. It's like, no, if, if you take care of the variables and you're intentional, it's a remarkably safe experience. And if you find value in it, um, by all means. Um, and so, yeah, they, they've been, you know, common that you will hear amongst many people is like, wow, I had this experience. It was among the most um, meaningful experiences of my entire life. Like that is, that's emerged from research. You know, you know, people have said that, you know, after their experiences. And if you talk to psychedelic users much at all, you'll hear some version of that story. And um, of course, I, you know, have my own, and I, which is kind of what set me in, in this direction. Um, you know, classical what, what I guess you could call a classical mystical experience of union of of feeling that feeling you described of understanding um, in a very deep way you know not an abstract way but in like in a very deep experiential right now way of understanding the isness of the world um, and uh, that sticks with you <laughs> um, so for me that's uh, they they've been um, really impactful that's why I do what I do. Brian? Yeah, similarly, you know, they, I've had and talked about on our podcast and other, other places, how psychedelics, uh, you know, transformed me or, or were so um, influential in my life. Uh, for me personally, now I, you know, I sort of pursued psychedelics as one track and then a second track was pursuing Buddhism and meditation. So I have a, you know, um, a meditation practice, a Buddhist practice um, in uh, a particular tradition of Buddhism that uh, is kind of a good complement for me in terms of psychedelics. So, you know, as I've gotten older, I've probably, you know, I spent more and more time with that more daily regular practice than you know, uh, psychedelic experiences, but I think it is a value in the psychedelic culture, psychedelic community. You'll hear this phrase, like you need to do your own work. Um, that, you know, I think for me, whether it's a psychedelic experience or, a, a, a you know, a 10 day silent meditation retreat, it's like, am I willing to go there? Am I willing to look inside Am I willing to have a, an altered states of experience that involves, you know, that's, that's hard, that's difficult, that's challenging, um, but that is valuable and leads to growth. So, you know, if I'm going to ask my clients to do that, if I'm going to um, ask my clients to turn towards their pain and to not run from it and to sit with it, um, am I embodying that value in my day-to-day -day life? And you know, being willing to do that then helps me be a better therapist because I don't feel, you know, I don't feel like a fraud or a hypocrite or I don't feel bad um, when I'm asking clients to kind of look at their own pain because it's something that um, I practice myself and that I know is valuable and that I, you know, I've experienced the, the value of that. So I think that's one of the great lessons that psychedelics have taught me that is similar to what I, I get from my meditation practice, which is, you know, acceptance um, and not, not running from ourselves. And it's a lesson I still need to learn over and over again. I'm not done with that lesson. Uh, and so I need practices in my life to remind me 
to, to, to be open to my pain, to be open to all of my experiences uh, and, and to invest my time and energy into what matters, not trying to feel better. Yeah, you're both well, go ahead. Were you gonna say something, Nathan? Well, I wanted, oh, I, I kind of did. I kind of wanted to demystify too a little bit because I think a lot of times when we talk about psychedelics, especially like, you know, uh, in kind of a clinically oriented, um, you know, podcast, and um, you know, we talk about mystical experience. You can talk; it, it, it can sound very like serious business. Um, and yeah, sure, it's that, but it isn't just that. And so, I mean, I think it's sometimes important to demystify. And, and your question initially was about personal experiences. So one popped into my head that I just I'll take a minute to share. And this is I want to re- rewind back um, way back that I was 21 years old. So many, many, many years ago. And I was studying abroad in Denmark for a semester. And in Denmark, there was a, there in, in Copenhagen, there's a section of the city that was at the time known as Christiania, which was a abandoned military complex that a bunch of hippies moved into in the 60s and claimed as the free state of Christiania. And they said, hey, Denmark, your rules don't apply to us. And the Danish government was like, well, you can't really do that. But, you know, apparently, I don't know, we're Danes. And so I guess we'll let you just no hard drugs, just do what you want, but no hard drugs. And so while drugs in Denmark were not illegal, they, you know, they freely and openly sold pot and mushrooms um, in Christiania. And so as a 21 year old college kid, I thought this was really, really great. And one went down there kind of often, but one night in particular, I went down there and got a few grams of mushrooms. I was by myself and ate them. And then I went to a bar that was there and I was sitting there and hadn't, started to trip at all and was just sitting there and then kind of start to feel something and I'm having a conversation with a Moroccan gentleman just kind of starting to feel chill and I hear this hey hippie you know I was at the time long-haired and had a tie to hey hippie. and I turn around and there's this gigantic Danish man who looked like a Viking and I was like oh boy and he comes up to me he's like are you American and I said yes and he's like I bet you don't speak Danish and I said no I I don't um I don't speak Danish and he was like, well, I don't know why you'd come to our country and not speak Danish. I was like, yeah, sorry, I don't. And he was like, I'll teach you Danish. And I then, and then I'm really like at this point starting to trip very hard. And I have this guy, he's like a foot taller than me. He's huge. And he grabs me by my shoulders and he's like three inches from my face. He's like, here, I teach you Danish. And he just starts speaking Danish into my face and then says, see, you understand? <laughs> I was like, no. And then he does it again. And I, I was crawling out of my skin and I had to get out of there and um, I did escape and I got and I went and I found a hillside and you know sat down and had a very very nice pleasant evening Um, like that energy from that that sort of conflict or whatever really like sent me into a really energetic state then I went sat on the hill and kind of released all that and you know looked over the city and it was wonderful but it was a very fun night it was a very interesting night but this is the sort of like I want to, I told that story because it popped in my head about set and setting and about context and about, well, what's an ideal context. And it's like, well, yeah, you kind of want to make it ideal if you can, but it isn't always going to be ideal. And it isn't always this, you know, one very serious thing. And it's also weird. And it's also, so, so I, I think sometimes it's important to poke, like take out a needle and poke that balloon of seriousness and of like this is just this like clinical thing and we're going to use it to better ourselves um so so that's the purpose of that just to kind of demystify a little bit thank you you know what for a second there i was kind of hoping that when you were 
uh, I could see that guy shouting Danish three inches from your face. Then all of a sudden you got like, you were speaking Danish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I just understood. I Something got it. All of a sudden I learned Danish. Now I'm fluent. <laughs> this, this, this is where Nate and I disagree. Uh, I, I don't believe, Nate, Nate already knows this, but I, I don't believe in fun. Uh, I, I believe psychedelics are only serious <laughs> business. So we have, we tend to have a disagreement about this that, that comes up from time to time. Yeah. You know, you're both actually like uh, um, well-trained in acceptance commitment therapy. Um, <clears throat> your process-based therapy that um, <clears throat> was really recently developed from CBT and, and uh, other traditions but do you feel, a larger question, do you feel like we're on now the cusp with the resurgence of psychedelics, the, uh, the groundbreaking work that's happening with process-based therapy and getting away, getting away from DSM uh, um, syndromes, that, we, that we're on the cusp of something really big and wellness across this country or in, in the globe. Is that I hope, I, I, I mean, I hope so. I, I, you know, I, I always, my initial reaction to hearing that question is uh, maybe it's because I'm anti-fun is, uh, is, is to temper <laughs> expectations, right? Like I think one of the dangers is, is we over-idealize psychedelics as the cure-all, they're going to solve all our problems. Um, you know, I think they're very powerful tools, uh, which can be used, you know, in a helpful way and an unhelpful way. But yes, I am excited about the potential of psychedelics and combined with the psychological flexibility model to point to these underlying processes of change that, you know, as act therapists, we've known about for a while. Um, and I think we can get even a better understanding as, as maybe that is what gets valued more in, in psychotherapy research rather than outcomes, right? We're looking at processes. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm hoping, and I think, you know, Nate and I talk about this. We, we, you know, wrote a paper together on this, that the psychological flexibility model and act is such a great fit for conceptualizing psychedelics, for talking about them for informing therapy around them. Uh, we just think there's so many reasons why they work well together. And the, one of the things about psychedelic-assisted therapy is there has not been a consistent theoretical orientation informing it. In fact, the, a lot of the studies take a more non-directed kind of hands-off approach very very much to the, to, the, to the therapy part. So as we get more down the line of looking at uh, what, you know, how to use these substances um, effectively, that's going to mean what types of therapy are best used to maximize the benefits from psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, always. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was thinking how to answer that. I think that, I think that psychedelics have a potential to be very impactful to 
mental health care generally, very impactful. Um, I think the psychedelic medicines, I think the psychedelics generally uh, can be sort of revolutionary, not necessarily through therapy, but just in general to culture. Um, I mean, I think there's that potential there. Um, who knows what will happen, right? I think that that's part of um, part of what's it's you know it's unpredictable. You're introducing into a very complex system, society, individuals, all you know, complex yeah. systems. You know, um, these things, these agents that seem to um, disrupt um, established networks, right? Mm -hmm. They disrupt. They disrupt, and so how that will impact isn't entirely predictable. Um, it's not entirely predictable. And so uh, potential, which I think is great because um, at the moment, not to be kind of a doomer here, but we're like in a lot of deep shit, um, pardon the language, but like, you know, our climate's in a bad case, our society's fraying at the edges. Um, I mean, people feel it around, around the world. Um, we've got issues, we got big problems. Um, and I think that this, the, the systems that we live in right now could use a good kick in the teeth. <laughs> um, and so I'm hopeful, um, but you know, it's, it's not predictable. It's, it's a little chaotic. It's a little bit of a trickster. It's a little bit of a, a Loki energy in here. So um, when you ask it, it change the world, I mean, yes, but not necessarily in the way we think and not how we think. And it's, it's sort of like a relinquishment of control to see like, where's this going to go? You know, I think a lot of people want to tell us well this is how it's going to act or this is what it's going to do and i just think it's a little less predictable than that when you really have it in a, a in a complex system yeah yeah you know when you were talking i was thinking about something that ramda said in one of his lectures that suffering is a sandpaper for awakening uh, i'm not getting that quote exactly right but what we're doing going through now is the uh the doom and gloom the anxiety is necessary for the shift in consciousness that we need. Um, is that, uh, you find that accurate or? Um, um, yeah, I would, I, I, you know, sometimes I think about my clients, you know, I work with um, OCD clients, let's say, yeah. who, um, you know, people with OCD are, are not, usually excited to do exposure therapy and stop their compulsions. Mm -hmm. And so if they're not suffering enough with OCD, they're not going to be motivated to really do the hard work of the therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they might say they are, but they, you know, sometimes it's the case that they don't really follow through with the homework and, and what's required. But if they're really struggling, that that's the prompt, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think as someone, I, you know, I talk about my own experiences with mental health problems in my own life. So that's what got me into therapy to begin with. Yeah. You know, I look back on my own childhood depression and childhood anxiety and as, as, as tough as it was, um, it, it forced me, it prompted me to learn how to take care of myself, mm -hmm. you know, mentally and psychologically. And, and so I'm sort of grateful, like if I didn't have that suffering mm -hmm. in my life, would I have been so invested in all of these practices of personal growth? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think we, as act therapists, we try to 
have different perspectives on suffering. And I, I like that about Byron Das. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, the large part of my life, and it just gives me thinking a large part of my life was just, was just, um, was in complete suffering and, and um, uh, many, many different types of therapist encounters that weren't very helpful at all. And so I didn't, I don't have um, a, a, um, a good, not one city history, but I, I don't have a, um, a good perspective that psychotherapy is helpful uh, based on the history. But um, the more that I've learned when I fell into this later in life, it was just, I've been falling upward because I, I, I want to understand myself better. It's like, holy crap, like all these profound insights, there's just so much information. And it was just not until recently where I, when I picked up uh, Pollen's book and I contacted you guys and thought, I need to know more about what the hell's going on with psychedelics. And I thank you so much for all the insights and information that you've given. It's fantastic. You both uh, now um, are on Contextual Behavioral, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and uh, head up the um, Psychedelic Special Interest Group. Yep. And uh, what else is going on that you're spearheading right now that you want other people to know? So we, uh, the SIG that Nate started, uh, Nate and I are current co-chairs, uh, is really trying to organize community around um, ACBS and ACT and psychedelics. We've got, we're growing. We've got people from all over the world now, which is really cool. We just formed a board. We're going to have several presentations at the upcoming Worldcon uh, World Conference in San Francisco. Um, and we have a monthly peer consultation group for therapists who are currently providing harm reduction and psychedelic integration therapy. Uh, we're planning and, and looking towards offering some trainings. So Nate and I are doing a training on ACT and psychedelics, um, not through the SIG, but through Portland Psychotherapy. That will, that'll be coming up uh, in May. And uh, so our SIG is growing and we're, we're just trying to disseminate ACT uh, within ACBS, but also amongst the psychedelic community, uh, because in my experience, at least locally here in Oregon, ACT is not a very popular therapy. A lot of the therapy modalities that are used in um, psychedelic communities are other things like transpersonal psychology or somatic approaches or IFS. So we're trying to help kind of get the word out that we think ACT is a great fit. I think there's a common perception that ACT is like a, well, it's behavioral, it's very manualized, it's kind of rote or rigid, which is not um, true or my experience at all. You know, I, I uh, my training, it kind of came from a background of more humanistic um, training. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I think, therapists that come from that background, yeah, they, they view ACT and they put it in this box of like, it's, 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 it's rigid and manualized and not very flexible. Um, so, you know, we try to dispel that, um, you know, when we can. And because, and as Brian mentioned, I think both of us view it as extremely conceptually useful um, in um, sort of forming that bridge between the experiences um, that we might have on psychedelics and then back into our 
conceptual reality in which we do live by this map and we need to augment that map uh, and we need language to do that. And I think the language act gives us is a useful language to sort of help augment um, the way we see the world a little bit um, to be more in line with things that we learn maybe when we're, uh, when we have insights from a psychedelic experience. Hmm. Beautiful. I think it would be important to mention yeah. uh, that, you know, there's, you know, in, when we talk about psychedelics, uh, Nate, you know, when Nate talked about history, it's important context because essentially, you know, at least in this country, we have taken away the sacred medicines of some cultures because we said they are legal or whatever. Um, and they weren't able to practice or we made it difficult to practice. And then now suddenly we're saying, oh, we, we've discovered that these are okay and uh, we're sanctioning them or something like that. And, and so there's cultures who haven't been able to practice with their sacred medicine. And, and further than that, because of the rise of interest in psychedelics, uh, there's cultures now who, who there's like literally not enough of their medicine. There's not enough peyote. There's not enough ayahuasca, um, et cetera, for, for use in, you know, the, the, the cultures that um, they came from. Uh, in fact, in, in the U.S., a lot of decriminalization efforts um, are trying to decriminalize all drugs except for masculine and peyote because, uh Native American cultures want that, don't want that to be accessible to the rest of the rest of the country because uh, there's not enough for them. And if there's harm from uh, Westerners going into some of these cultures and seeking psychedelic experiences. So that's one issue. And another is simply that psychedelic assisted therapy is going to be really expensive, uh, likely when it first um gets out, it will be unclear if insurance covers it. And so who will have access to this treatment first? It'll probably more wealthy people, which uh, you know repeats the systemic imbalances that are prevalent in our healthcare. Uh, marginalized communities will have the least access and you, know, you can argue, and I do argue need it more because there's more rates of um, mental health problems. There's more, more problems. So, um, there's a lot of cultural issues that are important to be aware of as you know, we're, we're really doing this big grand experiment of how do we introduce psychedelics into a legal mainstream context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's why, you know, I think we have to be very careful. Um, I think it's the, the um, we can't, in my view, take a, like a medical only approach um, like a medical only approach being we go through the FDA approval process and it becomes a medicine yeah, that me and then that medicine is prescribable because um, you're going through so many systems right there that you know it just ratchets up the up the price and you know and it does and it and it leaves in place a uh, unjust and unworkable system of prohibition so um, in my view it's it's imperative to support decriminalization efforts always um and that, that you you can't i think it's wrong i'll just say like i think it's wrong to support medicalization medicalization and not 
support decriminalization. It just leaves, it leaves oppressive structures in place. It continues to put people in jail. Um, so you have to take a decriminalization approach along with this, I think, to ethically be on anything remotely like solid ground. Yeah. Um, and I think that can also drive down the price too, right? Like, because if someone has access to a psilocybin experience and they don't have to go uh, um, through, a, through a professional to have that, they will go through the professional if it's affordable. Um, and, and they think that that is, uh, that helps them. Um, but if it's something that's going to cost, you know, $10,000, you, you know, like there, there's other ways that people will get around that. There are anyway. Um, but I think if we decriminalize it, make everything above board um, and, and don't allow it to be turned into this, you know, highly profitable product, I think that's really, really important. So, I mean, now is a crucial time, in my view. Um, there, it's a very crucial time in which sort of pro post prohibition policy is, is being developed. And so I think it is a really important time to, to be involved. And I think, you know, supporting decriminalization is vital to the future of a fair and just um, psychedelic future. Yeah, yeah. Important point to make too. Decriminalization does not equate to legalization, correct? So is decriminalization- No, although I think- September, Yeah. But it's not you. Yeah. Um, it's not like sold in stores, though, is it? You just keep well, decriminalization removes removes criminal penalties. Decriminalization removes criminal pe penalties. Um, legalization would be, um, which I support. You know, uh, legalization is creating a legal framework for it to be sold, um, either directly or sold and then used on site as a. Um, in, in super in a supervised manner um, yeah. so as legalization means like you can sell it and the government is going to tax you basically that's what legalization means it means the government's going to take a cut um, decriminalization means um you're not selling it and the government's not going to take a cut there's so much to uh to explore in this area and i think we're you know we're on the cusp yeah. of a potential you know, people will say things like, you know, paradigm shift in mental health. Like, I don't know, but I think we're, we're definitely on the cusp of um, a kind of explosion in research. And hopefully when these therapies um, become FDA approved or, or are accessible to the public, uh, well, we're, we're going to see, we're going to know a lot more. You know, right now, if you search the clinical trials database, there's 73 ongoing studies for psilocybin, you know, and there was maybe, you know, there was 20, you know, it's like an exponential growth curve, basically. So it's really exciting times. And I'm really excited about what we're going to find out about how the substances might be used um, in mental health treatment and beyond. Yeah, yeah. If, one, if either one of you become the next Ram Dass, let me know and hook me up. I think Nate's got the look more than I do. Yeah, you definitely have the look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'm I'm against gurus, so no, I don't want I don't want to be that. Well, maybe maybe you're calling. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, for such a wonderful podcast. It was so so delightful to to talk about this. Um, I hope it really um, there's so much, so so much more. But um, we'll talk again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to chat. Spit on the ground, hold
your breath Try to scare yourself to death Bury your bones under the dirt And tear at your heart and rip your shirt And stomp your feet in disgust Curse the gray skies if you must But you'll find when you are done Blue skies for everyone Your heart and give up the race before you start. Drop your drawers and roll around. Burn your house right to the ground. Go to sleep. Hit your head. Scream until your face is red. But you'll find when you are done. Blue skies for everyone. Blue skies, setting sun.